If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to two passages, to Genesis chapter 12 and to Galatians chapter 3. Genesis chapter 12 and Galatians chapter 3. So one hand in the Old Testament, one hand in the New Testament. I wanted to remind you that this evening uh, we gather again, the first and third Sundays of the month, we gather together in the evening. As this is the third Sunday, we'll be gathering this evening at 5 o'clock here in the sanctuary for a time of prayer and singing and testimony. We hope that you'll join us for that. Uh, these two most recent songs we've learned, we sung them this morning, Almost Home and Glory Land, are the product of an effort on our part to sing more songs that focus our hearts and our minds on heaven. And so if you found those songs edifying, come back tonight. We'll be learning two more songs about uh, heaven and the second coming of Christ. Uh, also this evening, our members here uh, will know that uh, last week we recommended three men for the office of deacon that we'll be considering over the coming weeks. We're voting on those brothers uh, July 17th uh, at uh, evening uh, members meeting. I'm going to be interviewing two of those brothers tonight uh, as a way to help us get to know them better. If you don't know them well, along with some other uh, members, we'll be interviewing two youth who were on the youth trip this past week. We'll hear testimony from them. That'll be this evening at 5 o'clock. I hope you'll join us. Please follow along as I read Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and then Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now turn to Galatians chapter 3, where we'll be spending most of our time this morning. Galatians chapter 3, I'd like to read verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come now before the preaching of your word, we pray that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, what we are not you would make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. We began a series of sermons last Sunday. The title for the series is The Christ is Coming. And the effort in these weeks throughout most of the summer is to take us uh, to some of the foremost passages in the Old Testament that prepare us for the coming of Christ that helped to build and create anticipation for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of the Lord. And uh, this is in part an anticipation for a series of sermons we'll begin at the end of the summer in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, the Lord has come, and we want to consider how He fulfills all that the Old Testament anticipated. Uh, but in these series, I'm just going to some of the highlights from the Old Testament that point us to the coming of Christ and seek to draw out various uh, implications and lessons for us who are the Lord's 
people. This morning, I want us to consider God's promise to Abraham and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Last week, we considered uh, the Lord's words to the serpent in the garden, that he would put offspring between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring, and that there would come from the woman's line this one, this son, this seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head, uh, though the serpent would crush his heel. Well, now I want to consider the promise given uh, 12 chapters later, or excuse me, uh, nine chapters later to Abraham uh, to see what is anticipated about Christ in these promises. I will not be able in this sermon to capture all the various components of the Abrahamic promise and all the ways in which that promise is subsequently taken up and expounded throughout the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament. Uh, but the material in the Abrahamic promise, it is expansive, it's far-reaching in Scripture. It is one of the main forces driving the progress of redemptive history in the Old Testament, and its fulfillment in Christ is one of the major themes of the New Testament. I think it's generally true. If you comprehend the Abrahamic promise and all that it entails, uh, you are, in a sense, well on your way to comprehending the whole Bible. If you could understand what the Abrahamic promise anticipates and how it finds fulfillment in Christ and in the New Covenant, you're well on your way to comprehending the Bible. Abraham is one of three towering figures in the Old Testament who seem to cast their shadow over the rest of Scripture. Now, those figures are Abraham, Moses, and David. And we'll consider each one of those figures and how they prefigure Christ in various ways and how Christ fulfills what those men uh, were called to be and do. Throughout the Old Testament, Abraham's importance is accentuated again and again. Uh, from Genesis 12 on, he comes up repeatedly in the Old Testament narrative. Abraham's significance then is subsequently highlighted in the gospel accounts. All four of the gospels, Abraham, his significance is highlighted, and particularly Christ being the son of Abraham. Abraham features prominently in at least two of the Apostle Paul's letters. I'm thinking of Romans and Galatians, crucial uh, particularly to Paul's arguments about salvation and justification by faith alone. Abraham is also prominent in the book of James. Uh, our sisters who have been studying James over the last few months will know how prominent, especially in chapter 2, Abraham is. He's also mentioned numerous times in the book of Hebrews, most notably in chapter 11, the Hall of Faith. Suffice to say, Abraham is all over the Bible. But as I said, it is beyond the scope of this sermon to capture everything the Bible says about Abraham and the Abrahamic promise. I'll just mention that three years ago, uh, we taught two classes in our adult equip class on the Abrahamic covenant. And then not even a year ago, I think, uh, we had a series of sermons on the life of Abraham. So those are all online. You can access those resources at our website. My singular aim this morning, though, is to highlight simply one aspect of the Abrahamic promise. This aspect of the Abrahamic promise that represents the most direct link to the coming of Christ, the most significant way in which the Abrahamic promise anticipated Christ's coming. This aspect is highlighted in our text in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Please look at it again. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. Galatians 3, 8 that quote there at the end of that verse is a direct quote from Genesis 12, verse 3, which is given at the beginning of the Abrahamic narrative. I read it for you 
a moment ago. There Abraham is told, in you all the nations or all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise is one of the first things given to Abraham in the Abrahamic narrative. It also is one of the last things God says to Abraham. He reiterates it again at the end of the Abrahamic narrative in Genesis 22, verse 18. And there he's a little more specific. He gives a little more detail. The Lord says there in Genesis 22, 18, near the end of Abraham's life, after he uh, obeys the Lord and being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, we read there in Genesis 22:18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is the particular promise I want to open up this morning and to highlight how it prepares us for the coming of Christ and to trace out some implications for us as those who follow the Lord Jesus, the promised offspring of Abraham. But first, let me give us a few um, features of background and context. There are a few things by way of background and context we should appreciate if we're to understand this passage aright. First of all, first thing we must appreciate by way of background and context is the connection of the Abrahamic promise with the promise given to Adam and Eve in the garden. We considered this last week, that what was promised uh, was that there would be a seed, a son, offspring that would come from the woman, from Eve, who is the mother of all living, and it is her offspring... This, this one in particular, he will have final victory over Satan. He will crush the serpent's head as the narrative shares. Well, now that offspring, that promise, is sort of running its line through Abraham now. Here again, we have the promise of offspring, the promise of a son, the promise of a seed. And now we're told a little bit more about what this offspring will do. But you must appreciate there is a kind of organic continuity between the promise given to Adam and Eve in the garden, and this promise now given to Abraham. They actually are one and the same promise. There is a unity between them. You might think of Genesis 3.15 and that promise of this seed that would come as sort of a seed that's planted in the ground. And now in Genesis 12, we begin to see the, the tree sort of shoot its first blossoms through the ground. We get a little more clarity on what this promise will entail. There's going to be the seed who's going to come from the line of the woman who's going to crush Satan's head. And also, in some sense, it will be this seed, this offspring, that will bring blessing to all the families of the earth. The promise is beginning to flower. It's beginning to bloom. But you see, it's one and the same promise. We just now appreciate it with greater clarity in Genesis chapter 12. Second thing we must appreciate by way of background and context, and that is this, the foundation of the Abrahamic promise is in God's sovereign and gracious election of Abraham. God's promise to Abraham is a remarkable expression of sheer grace. You must appreciate this. Abraham is a nobody. Abraham is a pagan moon worshiper living in Ur of the Chaldeans. He wasn't looking for God. This promise that we have given to Abraham, this is God bringing something out of nothing. This is God reviving the promise given in the garden, giving it new life. This is as profound a display of supernatural power as the creation of the world ex nihilo, the creation of the world out of nothing. This is as profound a display of sheer grace, an unmerited favor, as God making the promise in the garden that he would crush Satan's head in the context of Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion. Abraham didn't do anything to qualify himself for this blessing but rather in an act of the most profound power, 
in sovereign grace and mercy, God chooses Abraham, elects him from among the peoples of the earth, and chooses in love to Abraham to make him blessed, to save him, to deliver him, and to count him righteous, and to shower his love not only upon Abraham, but upon his descendants. Third and final thing we should appreciate by way of background and context is that we should appreciate the various dimensions of the Abrahamic promise. So here I'm going to give just a cursory glance at the three main dimensions to the promise before we take up one particular dimension of the promise. There were three things promised in the covenant that God made with Abraham. You can sum them up in three words. God promised three things, land, seed, and blessing. God promised Abraham land, seed, offspring, and blessing. First, he promised to him land. God was going to take Abraham out of his father's country. He was going to give him land. And of course, in the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, there is a kind of initial and partial fulfillment of that promise in the land of Canaan. We see God's people expecting the land, waiting for the land. Abraham doesn't see it in his lifetime. Uh, when he dies, he doesn't own any land except for Sarah's grave. But, but, but as the history of Israel unfolds and the offspring of Abraham unfolds, they eventually do inherit the land. Uh, Joshua leads the people of Israel into uh, the land of Canaan, and they occupy that land. But of course, that land is later taken away from them. One of the reasons for that is because that promise of land, of acreage in Mesopotamia that's no bigger than Rhode Island, uh, was never the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. What the New Testament clearly reveals is that the promise given to Abraham with regard to land is that Abraham and his descendants by faith would inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the land of Canaan was just an initial and kind of partial fulfillment, a kind of prefiguring of the land that we as the children of Abraham would inherit. Uh, Galatians 4.16 says that Abraham was the heir of the world. He was to inherit the entire created order redeemed through Jesus Christ. But we read in Hebrews 11 very clearly that Abraham was awaiting, looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. It was never meant to be this land in the Middle East that was the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. We know this side of the cross that the land we as God's people await for is the new heavens and the new earth. That's why Jesus could say things like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That is the ultimate fulfillment of the land promise. So land, and next is seed, offspring. You know, of course, in the narrative of Abraham and Sarah, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard this, Abraham and Sarah were barren. Now, that is to say they couldn't biologically reproduce children. It appeared to be impossible. And part of the Abrahamic promise is that God is going to give them a child. The child of promise is who? The child of promise is Isaac, right? But it's not just that they're going to have Isaac. The Lord is also going to multiply their descendants as numerous as all the stars in the sky, as many as the sands on the seashore. They're going to give him the child of promise and also going to multiply Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky as the sands on the seashore. And there again is an initial and partial fulfillment in the people of Israel. Uh, so I think it's in Deuteronomy, as God's people are standing on the precipice of the land, uh, uh, it's documented that now the, the multitude of the Israelites was beyond number that no man can count. Again, just an initial and partial fulfillment. But again, and this is not controversial, at least it shouldn't be, the New Testament makes abundantly clear that the true offspring of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, is not ethnic Israel. It is those who have Abraham's faith. It's us 
who, like our father Abraham, believed God and have it counted to them as righteousness. You sang the song in VBS. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. What's that song acknowledging? Those of us who, like Abraham, have faith, we are reckoned to be his children. We are the offspring that are numbered more than the stars in the sky and the number of sand on the seashore. An initial and partial fulfillment in the people of Israel, but greater and grander and truer fulfillment in the church as the Lord redeems people through faith in Jesus Christ from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Okay, there's a third dimension to the promise. Land, seed, and blessing. Blessing. God promises Abraham that he will be blessed in order that, so that, he would be a blessing. It's not just a blessing that's going to be upon him. The blessing God brings to Abraham, he's working in Abraham and through Abraham to bring blessing beyond Abraham. And so he promises in Genesis 12, 3 and Genesis 22, 18, that in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That did not happen in the Old Testament. You have the people of Israel, ethnic Israel, and then you have all the Gentiles, all the nations of the world. We're awaiting the fulfillment of that promise in the Old Testament. It's that promise that I want to expound and talk about this morning. That promise is contained in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Genesis 22, 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Let's look at this particular promise under three headings. Three headings this morning. Number one, God always intended his salvation to reach the nations of the world. God always intended his salvation to reach the nations of the world. Hopefully you have Galatians 3 open to you. Look again at verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. How did the Old Testament anticipate that God would justify the nations by faith? Where's that in the Old Testament, Paul's about to tell us the Scripture, foreseeing, foretelling that God would justify the nations by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in other words, this is the way in which the gospel was preached to Abraham. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, there's at least two things this passage plainly reveals, like just cursory reading, surface level of the text, two things this passage plainly reveals. Number one, salvation has always been on the basis of faith. Salvation has always been on the basis of faith. And number two, God always, from the beginning, God always intended the nations of the world to be included in his saving purposes. That's the main point under this first heading. Thus, this passage utterly undermines what I think are two of the worst theological assumptions that have gained widespread acceptance in some circles of the evangelical world, at least they have in America in the last hundred years or so. The first error would hold that God saved people on different bases in the Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, people were saved by obedience to the law. But in the New Testament, they are saved through faith. 
Friends, that perspective is exactly wrong. That is nowhere taught in the Bible. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this, you may know if you're familiar with Paul's argument in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, that verse, Galatians 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that he was justified by faith alone, that becomes the foundation for Paul's arguments concerning justification. And that justification is by faith and not by law-keeping. He goes to the Old Testament to prove that point. Justification by faith has always been God's way of saving people. No one has ever been saved in the history of the world through anything other than faith in the promises of God. Now, I wouldn't deny that there's a difference between the position that we are in and the position that Abraham was in. We understand sort of the full flowering of the promise of the gospel with greater clarity than Abraham. That's certainly true. Abraham had the gospel preached to him beforehand, saying, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. What did Abraham believe in? He believed that promise, that somehow God was going to bring children from his line, and through a child, God was going to bring blessing for the nations. He did not have all the clarity that we have this side of the cross. He didn't know Jesus' name. Uh, He didn't know that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. He didn't know who his mother was going to be. He did not even know that Jesus was going to die on the cross for the sins of his people. Uh, He did not know that he's going to rise from the dead. He had no notion of these things. Of course, we understand the full flowering of the promise with greater clarity. But make no mistake, faith was operative in Abraham in the same way it's operative in us. That is to say, faith, faith given to Abraham, fastened itself to the promise of God. That God would bring about salvation and deliverance and blessing for the nations and for Abraham through his seed. Faith believed God. And God was pleased to count Abraham's faith as righteousness, to reckon his faith as righteousness. That's exactly how faith operates for us. Again, the promise we understand with greater clarity. The gospel we understand with greater clarity. But faith does the same thing. We believe God, what he has said and what he has promised in Jesus Christ. And that faith, God is pleased to count it to us, to reckon it to us as righteousness. The second misgiven assumption prevalent in our day is that God originally planned to focus His redemptive purposes on Israel, and that when Israel failed, God changed up the plan and decided that He would go with the church, thus thereby opening up salvation for the nations that we enjoy today. To put it somewhat crudely, Israel was plan A, and that failed. And the church then was plan B. Again, our text just blows this idea out of the water. The scriptures foreseeing, foretelling that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The scriptures foretold, this is how I'm going to work. This is the plan. It's always been the plan. And God used ethnic Israel to sort of steward the promise along in Galatians 4. Paul compares Israel to something like a guardian or a chaperone that helped bring the promise to full fulfillment. But it's not as though God changed his mind. It's not as though Israel was given a trial at it, a good crack at it. It was always God's plan from the very beginning, before Israel was ever constituted as a nation, that God wanted to bless the nations. God was determined to bring salvation to the peoples of 
the world. God from the beginning planned to save all the families of the earth. And this is promised in the covenant with Abraham. Through your seed, all the families of the world will be blessed. Through your offspring, the Lord says, I'm going to bring deliverance for the nations. The Abrahamic promise assures us that the sovereign will and plan of God has always been and is today the salvation of the peoples of the world. In other words, the Abrahamic promise belongs not to Israel, but to the nations, because salvation belongs not to Israel, but to the nations. Genesis 12.3 anticipates the Great Commission by roughly 2,100 years. God promised that he would work through Abraham's line to bring about the salvation of the world. What I want us to comprehend out of this first point is that it has always been God's plan to save the nations. All right, point number two. Point number two. First was God always intended his salvation to reach the nations of the world. Point number two, God's salvation for the nations comes through Abraham's offspring, who is Christ. How is it that the Lord is going to bring blessing to the nations? God's salvation for the nations comes through Abraham's offspring, who is Christ. There are many truths revealed in the New Testament that are like utterly paradigm-shifting for the Jews of Jesus' day. Like the disciples' heads are constantly spinning with appreciating things that they just had not appreciated as little boys in the schools of Judaism. Uh, the Lord and His apostles will reveal things that most of the Jews of Jesus' day failed to see. This is one such point. And it is a point of mammoth importance in the New Testament. If you get this, you get a whole lot. The New Testament understands the promise of offspring to Abraham. The promise of a seed, singular, to be fulfilled ultimately not in Isaac, but in Jesus of Nazareth, in Jesus Christ, who is the son of Abraham. Look with me, if you would, Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. Referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. What, what's Paul's argument here? Okay, God promises offspring, seed, offspring to Abraham. The word offspring can be understood as what's called a collective noun. Collective noun could be singular but it's referring to a plural group of people. So, for example, the word people is a collective noun, but that's a singular noun nonetheless, right? Because offspring is a collective noun. It can also function uh, as a noun referring to a singular individual. So, for example, I have three children, uh, three offspring. Uh, if, uh, if they came up here after, after uh, the sermon this morning, they're very young, uh, two of them in the nursery, my son's up here, uh, if they were to come up and I were to say, point, point to me Alex's offspring, well, you could point to the three of them, and that would be correct. If we understand offspring to refer to a plural group of people, those three kids together are my offspring, collective noun. Uh, if, if I said, Nico is my offspring, Nico, singular, one son, singular, that would be true also. He is my singular offspring. I'm not using the term in the sense of a collective noun anymore. Paul is talking about that kind of thing here. 
He's saying when, we don't know exactly which particular text he has in mind, perhaps it's Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18, when God said to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, he wasn't thinking in the collective noun sense. He wasn't thinking of tons and tons of people. He was thinking of one. There would come one offspring. What we learn in this passage, the Holy Spirit is revealing through the Apostle Paul that this is the definitive and true understanding of that word offspring used so often in the Abrahamic narrative. That promise that God would give to Abraham offspring, that through his offspring God would bring blessing to the nations, that promise is pointing to one son in particular. And that son is Jesus Christ. True enough, Isaac, the singular son, singular offspring, represented a kind of initial and partial fulfillment of the promise, but he was prefiguring this greater, truer, and better fulfillment of the promise. There was always a true and better son that was anticipated in that promise, and he is Christ. And through him, God would work all his redemptive purposes for the nations. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. And when we read this promise in the Abrahamic covenant, we must see that what is being promised is far more than God giving a child to a barren couple, Abraham and Sarah. What is promised in the offspring God would give to Abraham is the salvation of the whole world. The promise includes us. We are the nations who, through that greater son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus, have experienced blessing and salvation, and deliverance. And friends, it is this exact point that creates sort of cosmic drama of the first line of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Are you not excited by the glories of redemptive history? What God was doing 2,100 years prior to the coming of Christ was foretelling that the Lord would come and that through Him, uh, we, most of us who are not ethnic Jews, we would know salvation through faith in Abraham's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus must be of the line of Abraham. That's why it's so important when Matthew wrote his gospel to establish us. He is the offspring. He is the son. Matthew was aware that in that opening genealogy in Matthew 1, he was justifying the Great Commission. What right have we to bring the gospel to the nations? It is founded on the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son who comes from the line of Abraham. And the Lord promised that through the offspring of Abraham, he would bring blessing and salvation to the nation. Jesus doesn't come from the line of Abraham. We're all damned. He must be the Son of Abraham. If blessing is going to come to the nations of the world. And as he is the promise on the offering of Abraham, we can have the hope of salvation. That is the second point. Let's now move to the third. So first, in opening up this promise, we learned that God always intended his salvation to reach the nations of the world. Point number two, God's salvation for the nations comes through Abraham's offspring, who is Christ. Now thirdly, and finally, and I'm sorry that these points are so long for the note taker. I'll say this one twice for you. Third point. The nations, that's us, the nations enter into this salvation through faith 
in Jesus Christ and become themselves the children of Abraham. I'll say that again. The nations enter into this salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and become themselves the children of Abraham. Look again at verse 7 of Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Look down at verse 26 in Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What is clearly stated in these verses, friends, is that Abraham's descendants, his offspring, should be understood not as physical descendants of Abraham. The Jews, Israelites, circumcised in the flesh. It's not people who have Abraham's DNA. But rather, they are those who, like Abraham, have faith in the promise of God and are, through faith, united to the seed of Abraham, who is Christ. Who are the children of Abraham according to the New Testament? The New Testament teaches us it is not physical descendants of Abraham, but rather the New Testament teaches that the two children of Abraham are those who, like Abraham, have faith in the promises of God to the salvation of their souls. And in this age, that means those who have faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. But you see, it is through faith. Faith is the means through which the nations will be saved. And it must be faith in the Son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. How is it that blessing will come to the nations? Well, it's not enough that Jesus, the Son of Abraham, was simply born and that He went to the cross and that He rose from the dead. That doesn't, of itself, those facts, those events of themselves don't necessarily save anybody unless sinners, through God's working, actually come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of Abraham which means faith is the only means through which we can be saved. There is no other mechanism, no other way by which the nations of the world, by which Gentiles, by which the peoples and the continents and countries of this world can be saved except through having faith in the Son of Abraham who is Jesus Christ. Faith is the issue. Faith in Jesus. And it has always been the issue. Whether or not you will trust in God's provision for salvation of the nations? Will you trust in Jesus, the seed of Abraham? This has always been the question, and the promise is if you do, then you are Christ's. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's the exposition of this one dimension of the promise, how it prepares us for Christ. We have seen that God, through the promise given to Abraham, always anticipated the salvation of the nations. Uh, that the offspring of Abraham, the one through whom salvation would come, is in fact Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we've seen that it is through faith in Christ, the son of Abraham, 
that the nations experience this blessing, this salvation. Well, so what? What implications does this have for us? There's two implications I'd like to highlight and then we'll be done. Two implications. Number one, as it is God's will to bring blessing to the nations through the seed of Abraham, as it is God's will to bring blessing to the nations through the seed of Abraham, we, the church, we should earnestly give ourselves to reaching the nations with the gospel. As it is God's will, it's His plan, it's His sovereign purpose to bring blessing to the nations through the seed of Abraham, who is Christ, we should earnestly give ourselves to reaching the nations with the gospel. What we saw last week is that God always intended to have a people. He was going to save a plural group of people. God would, through supernatural regeneration and heart change, put enmity between the serpent and the woman, but not just the two of them. God, through His sovereign power and grace, and through the work of the Spirit's work and regeneration, He would put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. That's us. And of course, it would be one particular offspring who would crush the serpent's head. God promised that He would have a people. Then in Genesis 12, 3, we learn that those people will come from all the nations of the world. It's never going to be just ethnic Israel. They're going to come from all the peoples of the world. Fast forward 2,100 years from when those words were given in Genesis 12, 3, and you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 2,100 years later, what do you have? You have the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, standing atop a mountain in Galilee with his disciples. And what does he say? Here's the son of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, the true and better son of promise, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What does he say to his disciples gathered there, to his first church? He says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We call this the Great Commission. Uh, it is, I think, rightly understood to be the mission of the church. What, what are we doing here as saved Christians who await the coming of Christ? We are as a church in league with every other true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfilling the Great Commission, publishing the gospel and the good news to the nations of the world. That's our mission. Which means that God has chosen that His sovereign purpose of bringing blessing to the nations will happen through the mission of the church. What is God doing in the world right now? He is calling out for Himself. He is saving a people for His own glory. And He is calling out men and women, various sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to be His peculiar people. And He's doing it through the publishing of the good news of the gospel through the salvation of souls. And He is doing it through His church. 
Friends, there are all kinds of things that God is doing in the world that have nothing to do with us. You know that, right? There's all kinds of things God is doing in the world that have nothing to do with you and me. He doesn't use us to do those things at all. This is not one of those things. God's appointed means of fulfilling the Abrahamic promise is churches like ours preaching the good news to our community and indeed to the nations. This is God's plan, and it has always been His plan. The Great Commission is the exact fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Therefore, for us who have experienced the blessing that was promised to Abraham, we are the ones tasked by God Himself, by the Lord Jesus, to bring blessing to others through the preaching of the gospel. We are tasked by the Lord Jesus to be the agents through which the Abrahamic promise is fulfilled. We are God's plan for fulfilling the promise given to Abraham. It is the Great Commission. It is the Lord Jesus' church preaching the good news so that blessing would come to all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth. Do you think that that has entailments and implications for you? For us? How we use our time? How we organize our budgets? How we as a church organize the life of this church? what priority we give to evangelism and missions, and how that's reflected even in the giving of this church, the line items within our budget. Does it inform our attitude toward men and women who might be raised up in this place and sent to the nations of the world? You better believe it does. This has all kinds of entanglements on us. We have, in essence, in seed form, in the promise given to Abraham that blessing would come to the nations of the world, our marching orders from the Lord Jesus. We are the ones who are tasked by Christ to fulfill the Abrahamic promise of bringing blessing and salvation and deliverance to the nations of the world. This has implications for the gospel that we preach. You understand John 3.16, wonderful description of the gospel. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. The gospel that we preach cannot be a parochial gospel because the gospel belongs to the world. The gospel did not belong to Jews only. It did not even belong to the Roman Empire only. It doesn't belong to uh, the West only. It doesn't belong to white people or black people only. It doesn't belong to folks in the Bible Belt only. The promise of the gospel, the promise of Abraham belongs to the world because Jesus belongs to the world. The good news is for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And our responsibility, church, as the people of God, is to publish this good news in every place. We recognize the blessing that God is bringing for the peoples of this world runs precisely through the work of local churches like ours. Which is why we as the people of God should sacrificially give to and pray for and send our best to the works of our brothers and sisters in Navrongo, in Ghana, or in northern Iraq, or in Shanghai, or in Bangkok, or in Weymouth, Massachusetts, or Richmond, Virginia, or to North Atlanta. We should want to give of our resources, all of us to advance the work of the gospel among the peoples of the world because what the Bible reveals to us is that through the son of Abraham, God is bringing salvation. It was always his plan to bring deliverance to the nations. 
And God is pleased to accomplish this through the work of His church, through the work of men and women like us. So friends, I hope, I hope that all of us will give to this effort. That all of us will pray for this effort. Do you pray for our missionaries? Recognizing us through the work of this church and churches like us. The Lord is bringing the salvation of the peoples of the world. We should seek to raise and train up from our midst men and women who will go. Not just to Winston-Salem, but to the remotest parts of the earth. That this promise might be fulfilled because this is what God is doing in the world. God has not promised. He has not engaged himself to promote the progress necessarily of your business or of your academic profile or of whatever competitions you young people might be involved in. The thing the Lord has revealed that he is doing in this world is he is saving sinners from among the nations of the world. And he calls us to be part of that work. Through the seed of Abraham, the promised son, God is bringing salvation and deliverance for sinners of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he calls us to fulfill this very work, to go and make disciples of all peoples. Now a second and final implication. Second implication. And that is that there is no other way by which salvation will come to the nations except through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other way. Young people here, I bless God, we have many young people, teenagers even, who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Counted the cost of following the Lord. Do you, do you believe this? Do you have this fixed in your mind? There's only one way. God is pleased to save the nations. God is pleased to save men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, but there's only one way. It's clearly revealed in Galatians 3, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. How? Through faith. It is only through faith in the Son of God that anyone is saved. I just encourage you, in the safety of this room, surrounded by people who love you, settle this now. There is only one way through which blessing and salvation and deliverance will come. His name is Jesus, the son of Abraham. It is through faith in him that we will be saved. There's only one way for Muslims to become the children of Abraham. There's only one way for Hindus to become heirs of the promise. Uh, there's only one way uh, for Buddhists in the Far East to become inheritors of salvation blessing. There's only one way the post-Christian secularists in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where our Church planting partner is working even now, Dave Como. There's only one way that they're going to be saved. There's only one way, hedonists in North Atlanta, where our brother and sister Zach and Aaron Prima minister. There's only one way through which they can be saved. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one way you can be saved and justified in the eyes of God. It will not be through your obedience to the law. It will not be through your good outweighing your bad. You cannot be justified by religious formalism. I can't give you 12 steps to tell you how you can become right and justified and be counted righteous in the courts of Almighty God through some sort of program of reform. God has appointed one way. One way through which we can be saved. One way through which sinners can be counted righteous. 
and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. I call this assembly in fulfillment of that ancient promise given to Abraham that God would bring blessing to the nations. Now in fulfillment of that promise, I call this assembly a reflection of the nations of the world to come in faith to Jesus Christ and therein find the justification of your soul. There is salvation freely offered in the Son of Abraham, freely offered in the Son of God, freely offered in Jesus Christ who is indeed the Savior of the world. If you turn from sin and believe upon Him, His promise is He will save you. And this blessing long anticipated, blessing that would come to sinners the world over, will come to you. You will be saved. You will be delivered from the wrath to come. You will know salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, Son of Abraham. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what you have done and achieved in the history of redemption is most astounding to us. Not merely because of all the twists and turns and the things that we never could have anticipated and how you brought this about. But it's that you brought this about at all for sinners like us. Father, what was there in us to suggest any motive, any motive that you should go after Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned so heinously against you? Father, was there anything in Abraham worshiping the moon in a foreign land, living in paganism among his people in Ur of the Chaldeans? Was there anything in him to move you to... To, 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 to require you to shower your grace upon him? Lord, was there anything in us that would require you to show such mercy, such kindness, such grace to us? We say, Lord, all this blessing, this good news, this salvation offered to us in Christ, we don't deserve it. We have never merited it but rather by our actions have only ever merited your wrath. So, Lord, we bless you that there is salvation for sinners at all. That you have worked throughout history, throughout time, through men and women like Abraham and Sarah, through all kinds of events. You've worked to make a way of access for sinners that we might be saved. We know there's nothing we have done to qualify ourselves for your favor. But rather, Lord, you in love and such blessed condescension have showered us with mercy and grace. Would you move upon every sinner here to lay hold of that grace offered in Jesus Christ? To experience something of this blessing that you wish to bring to sinners from among the nations. Bring it to us. Save our souls. Deliver us from sin and Satan and death and judgment. We pray that all of us would know this day that we are right, counted righteous through faith in what Jesus Christ our Lord has done. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.